Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. It's toward the back. Feel free to use the table of contents if you need to. In 1975, Bruce Springsteen released a hit song called Born to Run. And this was his first big hit, made him a world-famous rock star. And uh, in case you haven't heard the song before, it's essentially him kind of telling his own life story a little bit. Uh, It's about a kid from New Jersey, a young man, who just craves a certain kind of freedom. This man wants to be free from the trappings of his hometown and from the shackles of responsibility. He just wants to get out on his motorcycle and hit the open road and just be free. But at the same time, he also has a love interest in a woman named Wendy. And he really loves Wendy, but he's not convinced she has the same passion for the open road that he does. And so the song becomes sort of a plea to Wendy, baby, we were born to run, let's just go together. As one uh, commentator on the song wrote, he said the, the man in the song seems to possess the passion to love, just not the patience. And I think it's interesting, you could say that his craving for freedom, which is really sort of like expressing his innermost desires and wanting to uh, eliminate anything that's going to hinder his expression of himself, that desire actually undermines his ability to love. And I think this song, uh, even if you've never heard it before, is sort of a, a mini parable about our culture. See, we've got these desires that are in conflict with one another. On the one hand, we really want to be true to ourselves and follow our hearts and, and just go wherever our hearts lead us. But at the same time, we still profess to think that love is a virtue and we should all just love one another. But those things can't really coexist. But wouldn't it be great if the thing that our hearts craved the most actually enabled and empowered us to love well? Wouldn't it be great if the thing that our hearts were drawn to caused us to give of ourselves rather than seek to take for ourselves? Well, of course, as Christians, we were born again. Only we weren't born again to express ourselves, to run, as it were. We were born again to love. And the thing that enables us to do that well, to love with sincerity, with both passion and patience, is God's word. So let me put it another way, the main idea for this morning. If we're going to love one another deeply, we have to long for the word of God. If we're going to love one another deeply, we must long for the word of God. And I think that's what Peter is going to communicate to us this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you would follow along as I begin reading in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly or deeply from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so Peter's desire for his readers is stated very plainly in verse 22. He wants us to love one another deeply. Now this is the most commonly repeated command in the New Testament, to love one another. But I want us to back up for just a second to see how this connects to what he's already been saying. So look back at verse 15 earlier in this chapter where he says, Be holy in all your conduct. Now, if you were here last week, you saw that uh, there's a sense in which to be holy is to be devoted to God, that those ideas are synonymous. And so our growth in holiness is growth in our devotion to God. So that's sort of a litmus test there. And so what does that mean then that we are to be devoted to God? How does that play itself out? I like what Jerry Bridges said in his book, The Practice of Godliness. He said, devotion to God finds its outward expression in loving one another. Or to state it another way, our devotion to God is validated by our love for other people. And he goes on to say, we cannot truly love God without loving one another. This is the fulfillment of the law, as Paul says in Galatians 5, that we love one another. And so you could say that our love for one another becomes a kind of litmus test for our holiness, for our growth in holiness. Now, what does this love look like according to Peter? Well, the first thing he says is he wants us to love with sincerity from a pure heart. Now, some people, especially kind of in Christian circles, have become accustomed to think of love primarily in terms of actions. Love is something we do. And that's not entirely wrong, but I think it actually does go deeper than that. We can do all kinds of good things out of wrong motives, as we'll see in a moment. And so love really begins with a desire in the heart. Love begins with a desire to do good to one another. Now, you, there's lots of good definitions for love out there, but I think one that we can operate with for this morning is that love is simply the desire for the good of another. And what I mean is a true desire. As the Bible says, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you could say out of the abundance of our desires is how we think and speak and act. So love is very much tied to what we do, but it's rooted in the desires of our hearts. And the object of this love is to be one another here in the church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As we talked about last week, this community becomes a kind of refuge for us in the midst of a world that wants to tell us to follow our hearts and to just be free from any kind of responsibility to anyone else. But this kind of love for one another actually binds us to one another. And so we sing the song when we welcome new members into our church, blessed be the tie that binds. There's actually something good about being bound as a human being to love one another. And so try to imagine this morning with me a church community where every relationship is characterized by patience and kindness and humility 
and truthfulness and grace and gentleness. Think about what a community in a church would look like if those were the virtues that were just readily apparent. Think about a community where we're so committed to one another that we readily sacrifice our preferences for the good of someone else in the gathering, in the congregation. Where we're so committed to one another that no one feels like an outsider and that we're always eager to greet the new person or to greet the, the person who's just visiting. Imagine a community where we're all quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. A community where we're not known for taking offense at the actions or speech of another, but we actually live according to the proverb that says it's our glory to overlook an offense, to be gracious and merciful to our brothers and sisters. Imagine a community where we're more concerned for how we love other people than we are for how other people love us. It's a big temptation, isn't it? Like when we hear a sermon on loving one another, we think, boy, somebody else really needs to hear that sermon. <laughs> Isn't that kind of how we think? Like, I don't feel loved here. I want other people to respond to this. No, no, no. What God is getting done in our hearts is that we are called to love one another. And we should be so deeply convinced of this need to love one another that any failure to love is rightly recognized as a sin of omission that needs to be repented of that needs to be put away. Any way that we fail to love others as God has for us to love them is sin. And think of what it would look like for our witness to live in a community like this. To a community of love where our devotion to one another is so deep and so sacrificial and so kind to one another that those who are non-Christians in our midst could actually say, boy, God is really among you. This is part of my wife's testimony of coming to faith in Christ. Part of the college ministry years ago, we would take a trip to Florida. And for one week, a group of mostly Christians would live in a close community with one another. And I don't know how many non-Christians came back from that trip saying, there's something different about this group of people. Wouldn't it be great if the world around us could say about South Church, they love one another deeply, deeply. But of course, this includes uh, us all being sinners. We're not naturally born to love. That's why we're born again, why we're given the Holy Spirit. And so Peter has to remind us that this love has to be without the taint of sin. Because so often even our best attempts at loving one another can be tainted with sinful motives. And so he says in the beginning of chapter 2 that we need to eliminate the obstacles to loving one another. And so he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. If we're going to love one another deeply, we can't have malice in our hearts. That one's kind of obvious. Uh, malice is a desire for evil. So you can't desire the good of someone else if you also desire evil. Those, those don't go together. We can't be deceitful. It's not enough to just sort of play the part in hopes that you'll get something in return. That's manipulation. That's not real love. We can't be hypocrites. There shouldn't be any tinge of hypocrisy in our love for one another. In fact, you know what the Greek word for hypocrisy is? 
It's hypocrisy. <laughs> Do you know what the Greek word for sincerity is? It's anhypocrisy or anti-hypocrisy. Wouldn't it be great if we as Christians were known as the anti-hypocrites in our love for one another? I think that'd really be meaningful. And then we can't be envious of one another. Envy is the enemy of love. It was out of envy that the Jewish leaders delivered Jesus over to be crucified at the hands of the Romans. Because envy deep down is not only seeking our own good instead of another, it's actually seeking our own good at the expense of someone else. Where we think of good in this world as sort of a zero-sum game, and it's like if I'm going to be benefited, somebody else is going to have to lose out. I think secretly we all kind of have a tinge of that in our hearts. And then finally he says, put away all slander. Slander is simply saying untrue things about another person. Love and truth go hand in hand. And so if we're committed to love one another deeply, we need to be committed to speaking the truth about one another in all circumstances. Now let me just say this. I am very thankful for South Church. This has been our home for the last 17 years, and I'm so incredibly thankful for the way that you all have loved us. And I look out here and I see people who have held our kids in the nursery. I see people who have offered encouraging words to us to grow in the Christian life, encouragement for our marriage and for our life in Christ together. I'm very grateful for the way this church has loved us. But I wouldn't be faithful as a pastor if we didn't also acknowledge that there are many ways we struggle mightily to love one another deeply, don't we? We struggle to desire the good even of brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. So I'm going to ask some questions here. I want you to examine your hearts to see where you stand with these things. Are we more likely to tell our friends in the church about a problem we have with someone than to go to that person directly and speak the truth in love? Are we more likely to gossip than we are to pray for one another? I heard a pastor a while ago say, gossip to the ear is like the smell of bacon to the nose. We're just drawn to it, aren't we? You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's so bad that it's to the point where somebody who actually wants to exercise self-control and self-restraint says, you know, I, I really, I probably shouldn't talk about this. We say, no, no, go on. <laughs> Don't we? We know that's true. What if in that moment where a person prompted by the Holy Spirit wants to exercise self-restraint, if both people just said, you know what, let's just stop and pray for one another and for whatever person you're tempted to gossip about right now. What a radical difference that would make in this community. Are we more likely to confess the sins of another person than we are to confess our own sins? Are we more likely to attribute wrong motives to someone as though we know their hearts when only God knows the heart? Are we more likely to attribute wrong motive than to just ask honest questions to try and get at the heart of the matter, the truth of the matter? And when we're confronted, are we more likely to humbly receive what is being communicated and recognize that nobody has a monopoly on the truth in our finite humanness and that there might be at least a kernel of truth in what they're saying. I wonder if we have that kind of humility towards one another. 
I think if we can't be rebuked, if we can't be corrected, it's actually more a problem with us than the people around us. And so if we love one another deeply, we're going to love one another well enough to say, I can listen to what you have to say to me humbly, knowing that you're seeking my good and I'm seeking your good. What a radical difference that would make. Now let me be the first to say that I am guilty of all of those things I just mentioned in those questions. But let's hear the word of the Lord today. And let's commit to putting these things away that have no place in a community of Christians who've been bought with the precious blood of Christ and who need one another by God's design to grow in holiness. We need one another. So let's commit to repenting of those things even this morning. And so we do struggle. Of course we struggle. The spirit and the flesh wage war within each of us and within our community. But if we struggle so mightily to love the way Peter exhorts here, then where do we turn? What hope do we have to actually learn to love this way? Well, thankfully, he's given us the word of God. And so that's the other half of this passage, that if we're going to love one another deeply, we must long for the word of God. And what a comfort it is to know that God never issues a command without abundantly supplying the necessary grace to live out that command. Amen? Doesn't God give you the necessary grace to do what needs to be done to please him, to walk in a way that honors him, both in the community of believers and before the outside world? He gives abundant grace, far more than we could ask or imagine. And that's exactly what we have in his word. And the imagery Peter uses here is, is pretty vivid. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, those of you who have been around babies know what it's like when it's feeding time. You get hungry. I still remember the first time I was home alone with my son. Uh, he was probably six months old, something like that. And uh, Kate had left detailed instructions. She was only going to be gone like an hour. And uh, so... About 10 minutes in, he starts getting fussy. He's like, okay, so let's bounce, let's play, let's do what we're going to do. And he gets even more fussy, it intensifies. It's like, okay, well, maybe he's uncomfortable in his diaper. So I take him back, I change his diaper, and I think, okay, maybe that'll fix it. And it's like, no, that's not it. Well, maybe he's overheating, so I like strip him down to just his diaper, and he's just kind of <laughs> naked there. And finally, she comes home, and he's screaming, and I'm sweating and like in shock. She's like, did you feed him? No, I didn't feed him. <laughs> but that kind of intensity, that longing that causes us just to ache with a passion to have more, that should be our attitude towards God's word. We shouldn't treat God's word as Troy in his song, which was excellent, you know, just collecting dust on the shelf. And how often is that true of us? If we're honest with ourselves... We come home from church Sunday, we put it on the shelf, and we'll pick it up when it's time to go to church next Sunday. We should long for God's word. What abundant grace he's given us in his word to love the way he calls us to love. His word empowered by his spirit. And so he wants us to be desperate for the word of God. Why? Because in verse 23, he reminds us that it's the word of God that gave us new life in the first place. You've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. And then he says in verse 25, this word is the good news, the gospel, 
that was preached to you. This word is powerful. This word gives people new life. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. When we're born into this world, we're natural enemies of God. We don't care about God. We don't want to hear from God. We certainly don't want to obey God. But the Holy Spirit mysteriously, through the working of this word, gives us new hearts. It changes us. And all of a sudden, not only do we want to love God, but we come to learn how much he loves us. We come to learn that though we were dead in our sins and enemies of God, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place so that we could have fellowship with him, so that we could be reconciled to him. We learned that he loved us so much that as Pastor Doug prayed, he forsook the glories of heaven. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. That's the kind of love that our God has for us. And we learned that through his resurrection and his ascension that we have the promise of everlasting life, that he's gone to prepare a place for us to be with him forever. That's the effect the word of God has on a person. And I'll tell you, I'm no gifted evangelist, I've only seen three people that I've worked with one-to-one come to Christ in my life. And every time, it's not been the cleverness of my gospel presentation. It's been their exposure to the word of God. This book gives new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does this new life look like? Well, the first thing is that it's eternal. The living and abiding word of God. Remember, Peter's writing this book to people who are in exile. People in exile, everything about their existence is temporal. We've helped resettle some uh, folks from Afghanistan who are in exile, in effect, refugees. And everything about their existence is moving from one temporal location to another, one temporal relationship to another with no earthly security, although none of us have true earthly security. We just kind of get deceived into thinking we do. And Peter wants them to know that as transient as their experience has been, this word that gives them new life is fixed. It's firm. It's a firm foundation. It's eternal. It's the living and abiding word of God that transcends any time or space or circumstance that we might face. So we need to know that this word gives us eternal life. And the second thing about this new life And Troy's song touched on it as well. Is that our new life has reordered our desires. The word of God reorders the desires of our hearts. If sin distorted them, sin is what makes us want to love our freedom and to shirk responsibility. That's what sin does in our hearts. And what the word of God does is it changes our hearts so now we actually can love God. We actually can love one another deeply. And so we begin to reorder our loves according to the right priorities, the way God designed us, having been redeemed by him. And it's crucial in all of this that we recognize that this is God's initiative, right? We've been born again by his word. He's given us new life. We didn't earn it. It wasn't like we were somehow in our deadness pining for life. It was God's free grace and his initiative that said, I want this person to know me through my word. And so by his Holy Spirit, he quickens our hearts so that we would know him. And so we have to recognize that it's the word of God 
by God's own initiative that purifies our hearts to know him and to grow in him. And that's where Peter goes in the second half of the passage in chapter 2 here. The same word that causes us to be born again, to have eternal life, to have reordered desires according to God's will, that same word is the means by which he causes us to grow up in Christ, into our salvation. And so just as newborn infants don't stay newborn infants, always desiring milk, we actually grow into full-fledged human beings, into adults. And that's what the Word of God does for us. If we think we needed this Word to get eternal life and to punch our ticket to heaven and that was it, then we're deceiving ourselves. But if we recognize this is the lifeline, this is it, Without this, we wither on the vine. We need to keep coming back to this word because without it, we're not going to grow up into salvation. We're not going to love one another and we're not going to please God who saved us. And so the means by which God gave us new birth is the same means by which we grow up in him. And so the word of God draws us into deeper fellowship with the God of the word and with the people of the word. And the outworking of that fellowship, of knowing Christ in the scriptures, tasting that he is good, that works itself out in our hearts to love one another deeply. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you've been around the church for a long time, this might all sound familiar. So, okay, read my Bible, I get it. Come to church, hear the Bible, I get it. But there's something really significant about the way we approach the Bible as well. I have a fear that a lot of us, and I'll put myself in this category too at times, we think of God's word as this book of knowledge that we must master, in a sense, and sort of download information from it and bits of information, and that that is the same thing as spiritual growth. But that's not actually the same thing. Often you can tell if we view the Bible this way because our most common response to a passage or an insight into Scripture is, oh, that's interesting. Is God's aim in giving us the word that gives us new life and grows us in Christ, is his aim to pique our interest? Is it just so we'd have some nugget of knowledge tucked away in our minds to say, boy, that's really interesting. Maybe I can share this historical fact with somebody about the Bible. Oh, of course not. Nobody would say that that's how we should read the Bible. But sadly, functionally, a lot of times, that's how we treat the Bible. It's just another book of facts, and we've got to tuck away as much information from it as we can. Now, of course, knowing God's Word and knowing the information of God's Word is crucial. But here's the problem when we only treat it as a book of knowledge with information. When we're no longer learning something new, the Word of God becomes dull to us. We start thinking, I've heard that before. Now, do I really need to join another Bible study? Do I really need to be a part of an adult Bible community? I know the Bible. I've, maybe you've read it cover to cover. You think, you know, I've heard it before. That's how you know that you're treating the Bible wrongly. Or, Maybe the thing that really excites us about the Bible isn't even the Bible itself. Maybe the thing that excites us about the Bible has become some sort of historical, cultural background to the Bible. 
Now again, nothing wrong with learning about historical cultural background. But if that's the thing that we crave the most, is new nuggets of information about first century Judaism, then we've gone astray. We're not actually treating this word for what God intended it for. Or still another way, because we do still crave transformation in our hearts, we begin to turn from the Bible to other sources for spirituality. And we think, well, the Bible's great. It's got some great information in there. But if I'm going to talk about spiritual growth, I really need to look elsewhere. I need to find the latest author or podcast and kind of get on that train. And that'll help with my spiritual growth. You will not grow spiritually apart from this word. This is the lifeline. And we need to treat it like that. And so in all these things, we come to think in a sense that we've mastered the Bible. And we've downloaded all the information from it. I got it. We fail to recognize that the relationship with our relationship to God's word actually works in the inverse. It's not that we're called to master God's word. It's that we're called to let God's word master us. And that is to reorient our desires and to love one another deeply. So let me ask you something. You've been in church a long time. Has the word of God transformed your love for brothers and sisters in Christ in the last year? Has the word of God actually had this reordering of love's effect in your heart? Or has it grown dull to you? And I'll admit I've been in that mode myself. But we have to ask ourselves, why is it that God gave us his word? What is God trying to get done in our hearts through this word? And as you keep asking yourself that question, you'll find this is an inexhaustible source of riches and spiritual transformation takes place here. And so I'm afraid that many of us mistake knowing about the Bible for actually loving God through the Bible. And so think about what do you really believe about the Word of God? Do you really believe the Word of God is sufficient to do the work of God? Or do you think we just got to have something else in addition. Do we rightly understand that God has given us his word, not so that we would have all this information tucked away, but so that we would become more like his son Jesus, including in the way we love one another. Because if we've tasted in the word of God that he is good, that will transform our hearts. So may God give us grace to long for his word rightly in such a way that it transforms our hearts and transforms our community so that we really will love one another more deeply. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word from Peter. Father, we're reminded that left to our own devices, our capacity to love is so weak that the flesh in our hearts that keeps coming back time and again just wants to choke out our love for others wants us to pursue selfishly our own freedom and our own preferences. God, I pray that we would long for your word in such a way that it would kill the desires of our flesh so that your spirit might flourish and that our relationships with one another would really be characterized by genuine love from a pure heart. God, all of this is only possible by your grace and mercy through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.